Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the morality of everyday things. I'm Jacob. I'm Ed. And on this show, we like to look at everyday moral issues that touch our normal lives. Today's episode, we're back with guests uh, like we did last time. And the question is, is entrepreneurship a force for good? So it's convenient we're here with at least one other entrepreneur. Indeed. So obviously, quick introduction to ourselves. If you're new to the show, Anthony and I are the co-founders of a company called Stasha uh, and also a social enterprise called Tree Points. Yeah, you get points for planting those trees, guys. You do that. <laughs> yeah, well done. Points green. And, <laughs> and we're joined today by two Chris's. Uh, we're going to call one Chris and the other Cookie. Uh, guys, over to you to introduce yourselves. Cheers, fella. So yeah, my name's uh, Chris Cook. I am the co-founder of Old Street Solutions. We make boring B2B apps, so I won't get into it now. Uh, and I also have a podcast called Beyond Binary Thinking. My name is Christian. I'm like some weird mix of teacher and programmer. And I, I'm basically like a mercenary sort of independent contractor kind of person. <laughs> cool. Um, and guys, I mean, the reason you are here on the show, obviously you mentioned the Beyond Binary Thinking podcast. We've listened to some of your episodes. We've, uh, there's a nice overlap between the style of what we do. And uh, like us, you don't shy away from asking somewhat contrarian questions. And, and we want to dig into the big issues. Um, so today's one, the question, as a reminder, is, is entrepreneurship a force for good? What we like to do on Morality by Everyday Things is take a question apart a little bit, define the terms. We'll open that up to you guys uh, as we go through this. Um, first off, let's just do a quick yes, no straw poll. And is entrepreneurship actually a force for good? Is uh, it or can uh, it be? Yeah, I would say yeah. it can. Yeah, that's a better question. Can it be? I can, I can solve it in a, one sentence. It's as good as the entrepreneur, right? Yeah. So can it be? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, can it? Yes. Generally, is it? Probably yes. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll kind of come to the nuance. Maybe that's like, maybe that's, you know, circumstance where there's not true. Obviously, the nuance is where it gets interesting. Yes and no is, is, is a bit reductive. But okay, we've got a probably yes. Cookie, Maybe you were like a bit of a crap podcast if the answer was yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> solved. All right, let's go home. Ben. Yeah, um, I, I think as with most things, that there's always the, the dirty externalities. And I think mm, entrepreneurship in the modern day and age often rubs up against finance. Uh, and that's probably where the 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 creepy, dangerous um, externalities and evil exists. So I think we <laughs> need to address that today as well. Uh, yeah, I, I'm curious on the the specific mention of finance. And uh, Chris, what what are your thoughts? I'm very much on board with it. Could theoretically be in practice. I would say it usually isn't. At least it nice. tends to be not. Um, but um, I think more generally, I would rather say it's the wrong question to ask. Oh, Jesus Christ. Should we meet up next week then with another question? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go on. Feel, feel free. I mean, we, we want to have a kind of free discussion around it. One thing that we often point out is that, especially when you're asking these kind of quote-unquote everyday questions, it's often the case that, you know, we say one thing, but it's loaded with so much nuance that we kind of mean another, right? Um, what's, mm -hmm. What is the question that you think this is kind of pointing to that, that's making you kind of feel yeah, this? sure. Um, I mean, I think generally when we talk about entrepreneurs, it's just people starting some kind of enterprise that makes a certain thing, like to characterize entrepreneurs in like the broadest possible sense. Mm -hmm. And that by itself is going to happen in basically any society. You could have um, the most socialist society that ever existed, and they would still have some kind of entrepreneurs. They would probably mm -hmm. call themselves something different, but they would have a similar function. So I don't it's, think it's... having entrepreneurs isn't the central point. I think a better yeah. question is, why are so many businesses starting up end up being so anti-democratic? I think that's the major problem of our society today. Interesting that you specified anti-democratic, because that's not necessarily synonymous with bad. You could be, <laughs> well, I would so for say example, you could, well, some people might, but you could say that you're anti-democratic, but, you know, fervently fixed on doing some good things. You're just a not fr a friendly to people, fascist. To people discussing it. Yeah, you, well, I mean, fascist or, is, a, or, is an overtone sort of word. You know, to, 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 use the, to, to use the terms of Plato, a philosopher king, right? They're not democratic, but they're fundamentally good. But yeah, I know. Um, that's, I guess, a good way to think about companies today. It's essentially the Plato's idea of you have like this elder council that run everything and everybody's supposed to fall in line. But I guess the counter argument is then, yeah, but when you actually look at the economy, all these old guys, they are mostly idiots and people that happen to be there because of privilege and happenstance mm. not because they're the most 
like the smartest guys in the economy. Same way that we get the guests on our podcast. Well, <laughs> 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 okay. I'm, I'm glad you started off giving us a bit of a definition there because I think that's one of the first things that we should do and we always like to do is before we get too involved in a question, let's take it apart a little bit and understand what we mean by it. So you've given us a flavor of, of, of entrepreneurship there. Dictionary definition, I, I printed this just before recording, was um, uh, entrepreneurship is the activity of setting up a business or businesses, taking on financial risks in the hope of profit. I actually, do you know what? I found it quite interesting that profit was literally baked into that definition. So when there's no profit, there's no entrepreneur. Jesus, what does that make us, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> so wait, we're not entrepreneurs? <laughs> yeah, that, that definition uh, discounts most entrepreneurs in the world. So. Yeah, yeah. At least, at least there's um, the risk part. But um, no, I found that interesting. I don't, so we don't have to take that as our definition. To be fair, to be fair, profit. I mean, who said profit has to be cash, right? Like to, 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 to take Chris's definition, like any economy will have some sort of entrepreneurs. Um, and like, I think what I'm wondering is with this question, are we addressing actually the majority of entrepreneurs who are people providing small, useful services? Or are we thinking about like kind of, you know, the, the way that we colloquially use entrepreneurs now, which is like tech people, basically, because, you know, most most entrepreneurs are providing simple, essential services and don't even really have the scale to be doing much good or bad to people. Right. We're talking about people who run local stores. So, you know, you could be in prison. You could be, you know, running some sort of cigarette trading scheme and your profit could be some extra cigarettes, not cash, right? That's, That's true. still an entrepreneur in it's a sense. True. Is that? I don't know. I, I, I'd say so. I think um, it's it's not just an attitude, but there is a certain attitude that belies entrepreneurialism, right? And it's, it's making opportunities and creating opportunities. I would argue that's... More of an entrepreneur than a lot of the people in this space that we would think of as entrepreneurs, actually. That person is traditionally making a business and making a profit. We've not been very specific with the definitions. It's, you know, we'll have an open combo. But to kind of talk about good, are we, are we comfortable thinking of good as kind of the general betterment of society? Is everyone comfortable with that sort of understanding of good? Yeah, let's yeah. rope it into good for society for now. Sure, sure. So we'll have to we'll have to be quite aware of what assumptions we're making about what is good and bad for society yeah. as we go along. But it's good to it's good to stay tuned to those. I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna I'm just gonna kind of articulate my thesis, and then I want I I you know I want I I'm happy to defend it from Cookie and Chris um, and Jake. You if you if you feel the need to suddenly attack me a two brute, uh, <laughs> then I shall uh, <laughs> then I shall defend myself. Nice, um, sharp and I think my, my my fundamental viewpoint as an entrepreneur myself. We said entre entrepreneurs, their aim is essentially to generate profit, right? As far as I'm concerned, entrepreneurs can generate profit in two ways, right? You can either create value, take a portion of it, and as long as that portion is larger than the sum of the resources that you used to make it, you know that's a profit. That's yours to keep. The, the problem that I think um, Cookie and a lot of other people will kind of lean to is, is what I would describe as rent-seeking activity, right? Where some people have discovered along the way that sometimes it's easier to make profit by sucking value from other places rather than creating value. Yeah. Uh, I would, I, you know, maybe this is just me bending the semantics, but I'd almost describe that as not being an entrepreneur. I, I think of an entrepreneur as someone who is creating value. If you run a Ponzi scheme, yes, you're generating profit. No, you're not creating value. Yeah. Does anyone who does anyone call someone who's running a Ponzi scheme an entrepreneur? You could do though, right? I think that's the thing. I think I, I completely agree with you. I mean, Bernie Madoff certainly certainly thought so, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. I think it's... Um... I mean, uh, if you're going to define entrepreneur as creating good value for society, then yes, by yeah, that definition, it's, it's good. Case, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's my I'm problem is that so often it's not, right? Like, And, and yeah. I, I want to get into to why, why that is the case. I think there's a few things that as entrepreneurship as financial arbitrage. So I've heard you guys talk about, you know, seed rounds and investing, finding the right investors. And yeah, I don't think it's just the obvious Ponzi schemes that we like to hold up as scapegoats. I think the system, it's baked in. It's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, but I think it's generally my problem with, let's say, um, not entrepreneurs per se, but more like businesses in general. That when you talk about they like a lot of them make money from rent seating. I think that's one major thing how companies can get really rich. But there are quite a few other ways of how companies can make a ton of money. And I mean, why do companies exist in the first place? So neoliberal or basically any kind of economist, a neoclassical economist, I meant, 
they basically ended up with the problem about 100 years ago that I couldn't really explain why companies existed. Because you could have just a ton of independent contractors putting all the stuff together. You didn't necessarily need a company. So the theory of economics couldn't explain why companies existed. And around Kamigai Pose, he basically argued that, oh yeah, it's cheaper to organize resources that way. And I guess that's one answer, but you could also very easily say that the reason why any kind of firm exists because they make it very easy to exploit workers. Because if you have a company, it's very easy to make workers do more work than they actually have to in the contract. And it's also very easy to underpay them in lots of different ways. And that's basically but what wait, would this... be my criticism of companies more in general. But that, that feels like something that can be the case and not something that must be the case, right? So there's lots Oh yeah, of definitely companies, it can be the case. There's lots of companies there's lots of companies that pay their workers fairly, arguably. You know, my, my conception of fair is probably a higher standard than than the general conception. Yeah. But what's your conception of fair? Companies... Um, wait, can I ask you, um, do you guys employ yeah. people? Yes. Yes. Um so so I mean in economics the idea is that a person is being paid what they contribute to the company. So how do you know mm. what a person contributes to your company? Oh man, it's uh, like honestly, <laughs> I think that it's hard. Like, it's not trivial to determine that. The things that I'm more interested in is making sure that people are paid, at okay, first of all, at a minimum, enough to live a dignified life. Secondly, whilst it's not a good measure, something competitive. And then the third thing that we do is that we ensure that everyone has some ownership stake in the business. I think the third one but, is particularly I mean, important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think that, like, it's, it's a weird one because I am a founder. One of the strange paradigms that we have at the moment is founders do deserve so much more equity than other members of companies. Like, you know, the, the, the fact is that actually you can't even really do much about it because you can't, you can't explain that cap table to investors, for example. So, you know, fair is, an, fair is a, a difficult term to pin down. But my point is that, like, there are people who work in companies that are extremely large that otherwise couldn't give people dignified, meaningful employment that they're happy to have if not for the economies of scale that arise from, from a non-contractor-based model. And also, if you look at, for example, mm -hmm. look at, for example, what SpaceX did to the space model, right? Space was a contractor-based business. Uh, you know, every little thing was contracted out. When you contract, it introduces huge inefficiencies because you do need to manage every single contract and get them working together, right? And, and every single contractor needs to make a margin. Let me simplify my argument. I think I went a bit overly technical there. But so my main problem with companies is that the only reason the people at the top of companies get really rich is because they exploit the surplus of their workers. That's basically what Marx has said 150 years ago. And I think <laughs> it's pretty much still yeah. true today. And um, yeah, that's why the reason why people like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk got this insanely mm -hmm. rich. They don't contribute that much to the company or to society. They just take from their hundreds of thousands of workers and that's how they get rich. So you're saying that they're extracting a surplus from all their workers, right? This is yes. a, it's a little bit different to, you know, go to someone's house and say, give me your stuff versus saying, look, you are going to have the opportunity to create this surplus because of me. And I'm going to take a small share, a very, uh, like a small share from your share, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to fund creating that. And it's just that they, they support so many people that that adds up to a lot in one person. And I don't agree, to clarify, I've kind of quartered into defending it. You know, listen to our episode on billionaires. I do think that extreme wealth should be redistributed better. Um, yeah, I and I think really this think is the problem with these com conversations. It gets very hard to discuss on a personal level when to flip from the four people I employ to Jeff Bezos mm. and have to defend it on the same line of thinking. Actually, that's why governments exist. And that's why I'm concerned when companies become bigger than governments mm. and, and they struggle to tax them or break up the monopolies. Um, individually, as a yes. startup yeah. co-founder, what I do, and this is probably because I'm in niche tech, uh, is, is I pay mm. people more than myself and I will do that for a few years. Um, and that's just... The basic Same economics. Here. Same here. Don't worry about the it. basic economics of it is I'm hoping one day in the future to get a bigger payout, mm -hmm. but and they don't want to be another developer that's like, oh, but promise we'll give you equity. Developers get off offered equity in startups all the time, and and they call it like a joke of a lottery ticket. Like, mm -hmm. there's no shortage of, mm -hmm. of entrepreneurs promising if a developer just works on their great idea for cheap plus equity. What a lot of people have a problem with is, as I say, that the 
the finance element of things and the financial arbitrage and the idea that just because you desperately need a million dollars now, that person then gets a huge percentage. And that's the person that isn't necessarily adding value. And I know people will say, oh, but but they are. So here's where I come in and be like, well, if it's profitable for some idiots at a bank who are throwing dartboards randomly, uh, uh, why why doesn't the government do that? Like, I think finance I itself for this that. sort of thing could be nationalized, not exclusively. You don't ban finance, but I, you see countries like Switzerland, Norway, that invest a lot more in supporting small businesses so that it's not just a lot of money going to a few bankers because there's a lot of problems I, with that and 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 what wait, that often touches on is privilege yeah switzerland has uh, like the guys that facilitate all the tax dodging in the world well, yeah, <laughs> they, they do that too but i think they also support small businesses with micro loans cancels out i mean if you think about the uk if you think about the uk to be fair we have some great tax schemes that in effect you know, it's not a direct cash transfer, but in effect are doing that, right? It still yes. makes you, I get what you mean. It still makes you kind of pray to the actual businesses who will give the money that benefits from those tax schemes. This is this is interesting. I didn't, I didn't expect this to go so far down cap tables, but I actually think it's quite a key mechanic of how this all works. I think we should explain some of the stuff we're talking about in case it's not clear for listeners. Standard fare when you start a company is, well, the way that me and Ant did it, for example, we split the company between us. I, I was like, one or two shares each and then when we brought investors on um in exchange for taking the investment we sold varying percentages of the company i think it's pretty typical to give away between 10 and 25 percent would you guys agree with that um yeah, yeah more than that you're probably getting sharked less than that you are the shark i don't know <laughs> but <it's, laughs> well l- l- less less than that it's like is it worth the effort of doing around yeah but it's interesting because that's i guess somewhat a social norm of, of finance and entrepreneurship, isn't it? And and it's exactly like you were saying earlier, Ant. Um, it's it's interesting again that the expectation is that founders will retain quite a significant amount of equity. And and investors, we've heard them say this. We we've had conversations along these lines. The expectation is that founders will still hold a significant chunk of the company. Obviously, over time, it gets diluted and diluted. But that's interesting because you're 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 absolutely right, Chris Cookie, to to sort of pinpoint this particular dynamic of in terms of risk. It's it's disproportionate. Entrepreneurs are sort of risking their time and reputations. Finance guys are risking their money. Are they really not even like, their money? Yeah, it's oh, not, not even their, their money, money. right? <laughs> yeah. And they and, baked and remember, into remember, their model management. Yeah, and let's be clear: baked. You talk about risk. The problem is, although these uh, financial institutions like to pretend they're smart money and that they'll be supporting these businesses with their experience and their contacts. We all know that the model is actually to throw money at a hundred different companies, throw it at the wall, see what sticks. Um, and, and really the model is hope a hundred companies fall off the cliff and one of them builds an airplane on the way down. And, and they don't, yeah. I've heard you guys talk about this. They don't actually care if a company makes a decent profit for itself and its workers. That's actually a failure for them because they throw yeah. m- money, spreads their bets so thin. They need one to be the next Uber. And you end up with a particularly toxic environment where actually these companies then have to overextend and have to overpush and have to go for another round of investment. And and that mm. first investor will probably be looking for you just to sell on to the next bigger fall. They, they can mm. show the hockey stick 10x and then get out, right? That's what they want, a, a quick, mm. dirty exit. And uh, it's not good for anyone. And you have a yeah. very nice metaphor on this. The VCs like to say that they're selling rocket fuel, right? Which obviously is... You know, it sounds pretty grandiose. Like, if I'm going to be pumping any fuel, it's going to be it's going to be rocket fuel, right? Or jet fuel, whatever they call it. I think that actually, in a lot of ways, an analogy that's more, more apt is probably saying that they're they're selling steroids because it's something that can help you grow but has adverse side effects. It's something that's kind of slowly become both the norm and and <coughs> the norm to take dangerous levels and also something that you can give to anyone like VC money has leaked into so many companies that traditionally are not like quote unquote startups, right? Uh, companies that make physical products and can't scale the way that software can. There's something very glamorous about jet fuel, rocket fuel, whatever you want to call it. But the truth is there are side effects to when companies pump mm. money in this way. And I think Cookie, you mentioned Uber. That's, that's, a, that's a particularly pertinent example, right? Because actually, do you know, Uber is a really interesting one to debate. 
has Uber been net positive? Because uh, on the one hand, it's made it fantastically easy to travel. It's improved physical, social yeah, don't, mobility. Don't tell me that you don't like using their service. As, as a consumer, I love it. I think I think it's awesome. Um, however, clear adverse side effects to Uber are, one, look at the whole employment tribunal case of workers' rights. Like, are drivers to be classified as employees or are they private contractors? That whole debate has raged for years. There's the toxic culture that was raging within Uber. There's the impact they've had on the taxi industry more broadly. There's actually, you know, we, we like to look at entrepreneurs as being job creators, but if we're creatively destroying existing industries, actually were more people, jobs net displaced by Uber than created? Yeah. I, people, I genuinely don't people know. Love the term, people love the term disruptors, right? In order to be a disruptor, you have to be disrupting something. <laughs> yes, and often yeah. that's workers' I think rights. Make, um, I mean, yeah, I think for all of these companies, the like for Uber or Amazon, it doesn't really matter. Like, would it be that hard to fix them? All you really have to do is make sure that the workers actually own the company. And I think something like this would have been a really good first step to make sure that these companies become more equal and less exploitative while still offering a really useful service. And like, yeah, I agree for Uber. If you ever try to order a taxi without that kind of thing, like a traditional one, it's so terrible. It's a nightmare. It is, it is interesting, just to, just to follow on from that, specifically Uber and Amazon. What, what I think has changed in the last hundred years that I find peculiar about capitalism, but, but interesting, is um, it used to be the case that companies would rise to positions of monopolistic power, which is akin to what's happening. Uber's not a monopoly, obviously, but like just run with this. And it used to be damaging for consumers. Like The entire monopoly regulation was catered around the fact that people would rise to monopolistic levels of power, they'd jack prices up and consumers would suffer. And ironically, what's happened this time around is it's the other way around actually these services get more and more beneficial to consumers but there are other stakeholders who get hurt in the process and i think correctly in the examples that you're giving it's uh, it's it's employees or not even employees just workers in general that tend to be suffering in these cases and i mean social media different example but then to some extent consumers are being harmed right because they're the ones whose data is being flogged for private gain uh, different example but it's interesting that it's not about prices anymore. It's not price hikes that are the problem here. There's always an externality. There's always a price to be paid. Excellent <laughs> use of that word. Mm. I love it. <laughs> I think th mm. this conversation gets warped uh, by the extremes. So I think you have mm. these massive you know, conglomerates who, as I say, it, it's not for us to solve. Um, it's going to take big government legislation. And even individual countries are struggling to rein in a company the size of Facebook or Amazon. Um, likewise, I think the, you know, the little scrappy startup, right, is the example that lobbyists, when they're trying to stop any of these legislations, love to wheel out as, oh, but look at the little scrappy guy. And, and I think <laughs> both of those extremes are kind of unhelpful. I think what's really a problem here is the middle ground. Because we're probably agreed that it's nice for a little individual to have some more autonomy, not be working for a nasty boss and, and create their own idea and see that happening. But what I really have a problem with, and I think often gets avoided and not talked about enough, is, is the dangerous middle ground. Let, let's that, let's yeah, be specific. Yes, let's. Um, so I... Take, take, take our company. <laughs> cool. Go on. We're a platform for luggage storage. <laughs> we employ a bunch of people. It, it, on the face of it seems to be the classic example of Adam Smith's invisible hand. Like we're solving a problem for people. We're adding value. We're creating employment and we're not doing it out of goodwill. We're doing it to create a profit. And yet it seems to be beneficial for people. Are we, are we not adding value to society? Are we the bad guys? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> wait, wait, sorry. Can I interject really quick? Yeah. Because Adam Smith has an interesting point here. Could you make the counter argument that you guys created a company not because of self-interest, but sympathy for other people to make the world a better place? Nope. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nice. No, I mean, I, we, didn't do it, we didn't do it for selfish reasons, but we didn't do it, you know, because we wanted to provide luggage storage mm. to the world. Um, well, you're right. We didn't go into, you know, we weren't born with like the sort of mission that we're going to connect up shops and travelers and luggage storage is our sort of God-given purpose. But we definitely, it's more than just profit seeking, right? There's a lot of what drives you into entrepreneurship is you want to learn, you want to have this experience, you want to create something. It's that sort of creative drive, mm -hmm. right? It's more, and it's more than just creating profits. It's the whole sort of experience that you create in the process. Yes. And yep. actually, let me go on with that. The point that I'm really trying to get towards. Now, imagine you mm -hmm. lived in like a more socialist society where you never had to worry about um, 
your food, your rent, um, your basic daily necessities, basically you would take out money from the equation. Would you have still found the company or something like the company? Jake and I actually often talk about this. Jake and I are both from quite fortunate middle-class backgrounds. And we actually see ourselves as perfect examples of the sort of entrepreneurship people can do when they do feel that kind of security. So, so if it was a socialist country, I'd say even more so. Like the reason we did it is because we had safety nets. They were just personal. And I wish more people had that safety net to feel that comfort. I want to address the Adam Smith point quickly as well. I, I, I agree that people misunderstand Adam Smith, but I don't agree that Adam Smith never said anything about the invisible hand and it didn't mean what, like, and people were actually sympathetic. But like you said, a lot of people think he's like a crazy yeah, right-wing guy. Uh, his, his can I get the counter argument? Like people are... So um, basically, the most famous quote of Adam Smith is the invisible hand. The second most famous mm -hmm. one is that monopolists exploit the public if you don't rein them in. That seems like a pretty yeah. heavy contradiction. Well, I think oh, Smith no, no. Was, I think, Smith I think, was well, I think it's, there, right? I think it's totally consistent. I think yeah. it's totally consistent. Like what he what he's saying is, and and his his viewpoint, as I understand it, aligns with my own very well. It's that the fundamental system of capitalism is effective at getting people to actually do communal good, but and this is the caveat that people seem to miss with him. He assumed that people would just kind of like self-regulate, and insofar as they don't, the government should regulate. Because I, th yeah, I think Smith but is, Adam Smith Smith, is surprisingly um, left wing, right? And and when he yeah, wrote, yeah, he's thing, very left wing. When he wrote no, no, um, about the pin factory, it was it wasn't as like wow, here's a testament to the efficiency of the division of labor. It was like actually, it's extremely dehumanizing when people are sort of yeah. allocated the whole of like a machine. Mm. So yeah, I think it's very difficult to consider Adam Smith as left or right wing because he lived in such different times. You can't really make that connection but mostly because he was coming from feudalism which was objectively worse than basically any measure so going from feudalism to capitalism is a very easy step because then you actually have something like workers rights individual property that is much better than like a feudal lord that takes everything from you it's completely divorced from any of the politics we have today because it's such a different time and such a different economic system but he would totally have voted Lib Dem, right? <laughs> center of center. Oh, God. <laughs> Can I try and tie these threads together then? Because Please. I think that we nearly have a synthesis yeah, yeah. here. There, there was a beautiful point earlier that because of your privilege and, and comfort, and, and I think it's the same for me, right? Like I didn't start a business with money from my parents, but I did jump off the cliff knowing that a safety net was there if I needed it. Yeah. And, and I think probably we'd all agree that wouldn't it be great if that was available for more people? Mm -hmm. Right. I think we all agree that like, there's no doubt that because of the current system, the financial institutions, it's predominantly white middle class people who went to good schools. And record and listen to podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's the same group often. Um, and we'd all love to see and society would be better if there was more representation there. And, and I think one of the, the main things we could do is, is as I say, like I not trust the free market to do that because mm. it's it's been given mm. every chance and we know it won't. Um, I do mm. think there is some cause for positivity. There are barriers to entry that are getting lower and lower. I think mm -hmm. things like low code, right? So everyone wants mm. to be a tech startup, but if you look at more and more access to finance and things like low code, which means that it's not just for the privileged few who get really technical and, and, and learn enough or skills or pay for someone to do it. Yeah. Um, with, with things mm. like low code, it's getting easier and easier for a, a broader and broader, more diverse group of people to come up with an idea and share that idea. It's never been easier as well to broadcast your ideas. Okay, there, there are problems with the social media companies doing that. But if you have a good idea, you, you have the largest megaphone ever with which to, to get it out there. Is there not some positive phrase at, at the end of this? I'd say there definitely is. And, you know, we, we, we touched on this a little bit with our personal examples, but I think it's, it's refreshing to see there's a new generation of businesses who are you know, we haven't talked about B Corps yet or, or, or social enterprises or that sort of commitment of business for good. And I think all it takes for that to be effective is just to recognize that there are more stakeholders in play than just shareholders who are driven to make a profit, right? If you can run your enterprise in such a way that it means employees benefit your customers, you obviously want them to be front and center, and then the shareholders can still get a return at the end of that, then you've kind of lined up all those incentives in a way that can be really effective and really beneficial. And I think given the sort of trends that we're seeing and, and millennial sort of demand for sustainability and, and, and interest in that space, I do think 
those incentives are going to be more and more driven by the market. However, what I don't mean is for that to sound like sort of free market faith. I, I, I'm completely on your side in that respect. I think this is where you need regulation, intervention, stuff to make that stuff possible. So I think there's a real cause for optimism when it comes to entrepreneurship. Uh, I guess I would disagree on that one. I mean, I mean look, me. Christian, before we we get too much, <laughs> let, let me just say this. Like you described at the start, the problem with companies, you said before that you know, working for a company shouldn't make economic sense. And it'd be brilliant if we were heading towards a point where everyone was a, a contractor. And look, I started a business on my ability to contract and not have to work for a big evil corp with loads of rules. And I think there's a generation of people who are expecting that right and more and more able to work for themselves. Are you finished? Yeah. <laughs> if you can ask like that, it better be. <laughs> so, I mean, it's to the point where you mentioned earlier that, um, yeah, we have more and more chance to express ourselves and like to make our own content. So, for example, I do a lot. Um, I do lots of YouTube tutorials, for example, um, for programming. I guess you all know Udemy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great online learning platform. It sucks so unbelievably hard. I hate it. Um, no, no, no. Um, I thought you guys were about to agree actually... on one thing. But... No, no. Um, this is something you only really realize when you actually sell stuff on Udemy, which I suppose you have never done, right? I, I haven't. I've just, no, I've no, just no, done no. courses. No. Only ever bought. No. Okay. Let me ask you a question. If I sell a course for $15 on Udemy, how much money do you think I get as the creator? Ten. Nope. Five? Nope. I get like three point something dollars. It's insanely Ow. low. I know well, that their because prices are super dynamic, right? They've got investors to pay. But yeah, then the actual annoying. creator only cheap. gets like three dollars out of that. It's ridiculously low because they're like a giant monopoly. And that's the point that. But wait, wait. Yes, you, you wait, can to clarify. Why is why is why is that a monopoly though? Like, there's no network effect or anything like that, or a capital economy of scale. Like, anyone can make a platform for sharing online. Uh, and right? there are plenty of others. Yes, right? but oh yeah, yeah, that's actually a really good point. So what you guys said earlier that yes, you have a more chance to get your word out. You have like basically everybody has a microphone. The thing is that only some very few people have a really giant microphone that everybody knows about. And basically, what I'm kind of contractor, I'm like a more glorified and fancier Uber driver. Well, yeah, I provide a service that people like to get, but most of the yeah. money I create still goes to somebody else. Okay. So this is so this is very different. This is very different to something like an Uber driver, where the Uber driver is doing this as their main form of employment, so it has to pay enough to live a dignified life, right? Because you, in this case, have a very clear alternative: don't use these platforms if you're not happy. And you said, "Oh, I get this many views, and they only pay me X." If you didn't use their platform, you'd probably have zero views. If you didn't use Udemy, you'd probably have made zero sales, right? Uh, I, know, yeah, sure, but I, if, I agree intuitively that the share they're taking is too high, but I mean, if the if the platform couldn't exist if they weren't taking those shares, then then what choice do they have? Wait, uh, let me check. What's the annual profit of Udemy right now? Udemy I mean, it sounds like you should start a, a tech startup, bro. Right? That's what I'm hearing. Udemy should just make a. Udemy should just make a. Wait, Chris, do you, do you not see the juxtaposition between saying? Oh, no, no, I, I get your point. And, yeah. and maybe they don't, have pro they don't have profits. It's because all the profits are going to getting you those 800 users. No, no, I, I get your point that without the platform, I wouldn't have any viewers at all. But then the counter argument the is, job, is so... the main reason why they are in charge is because some people built the platform. Why are they entitled to this much extra profit just because they founded something that happened to become this profitable? And I feel like generally as a society, it would be much better not. for... They're not. To they're like not. Make a, socialize. Make a competitor. They're well, not. yeah, good luck competing against Secondly, Google. They, there's plenty of competitors to Udemy. Uh, Coursera, off the top of my head. Uh, you can't... If you want to go specific for programming. Yep. So you acknowledge that maybe it's not so easy and they're not arbitrarily taking the profit. Maybe it takes the profit to get you those 800 users. Do you really, on the course, do you really think that they are entitled to like 75% of the money for every course just to run a couple of servers and like make some advertisements once in a while. But it adds probably right. I, don't I don't think, think it's I really think it's much easier thing, than right? you're giving it credit for. No, I mean, much, I know, I know they definitely deserve like some like part of the share, of course. Put it like this, the choices are make a small share of 800 or make a larger share of about 50. I mean, I guess my alternative would be make Udemy some kind of platform that is controlled by the people that created courses there. Yeah, which I, to and be fair, I don't, I don't disagree that they should have more say in it. I mean, this is basically my entire point for most of these companies, that the reason why all of these big Silicon Valley companies are so rich is because, one, they have um, a crazy amount of first mover advantages where they basically became so large, they buy any other competitor that Wait. becomes even remotely dangerous I, to them. I hugely disagree with that. Like, 
literally the biggest ones, Facebook and Google, weren't first movers. MySpace and Friendster, Netscape, or whatever. <laughs> they were the first ones to become like, really big. Yeah. So I, I acknowledge, and and the American government is now acknowledging that, like in recent years, their antitrust has not been good enough. And I agree with that. Oh, but yeah, I mean, definitely. like, fine. Look, look, look at Facebook. Facebook's not invincible. Facebook's been leaking customers for years. Like, who actually within the age range sub thirty five uses Facebook now? Like, Snapchat came out of nowhere. TikTok's come out of nowhere. Uh, now this um, clubhouse has come out of nowhere. They're not they're not invincible, and they didn't buy any of those ones, right? They're genuine competitors. And in the case of something like Udemy, again, I just come back to the point that they're probably not profitable. And that, but that's on the one hand, that's why they have to charge you so much. On the other, that's why you can get eight hundred views just by posting on a platform. And, and to and go you're very, to your you're very welcome to to try and sell to get your own customers directly, but it'll yeah. probably be harder than just but, taking a small share from Udemy. And to go to your worker co-op model, would all the workers be prepared to run at a loss for a year to help grow the platform? It'd be a hard sell, right? I mean, we already have worker-owned companies. They're called cooperatives. Um, companies like Mondragon or in the UK, they're also um, the cooperative, for example. Um, appropriate name, I suppose. <laughs> they are not perfect, but much better in terms of that. The workers that actually create all the value actually have a say about how the company should be running and um, how it should operate and who should get the profits. And this would lead, I think, to much fairer and better distribution of wealth in society as a whole. So the main problem I have with companies at all, it's not even entrepreneurs. My problem with companies is that they are incredibly hierarchical and also as a consequence of being hierarchical, exploitative. And this you see in basically any big company, the reason why people at the top of these big corporations are so rich is because they get the surplus of lots of their workers. I don't, I don't totally disagree with you when it comes to splitting ownership, right? I mean, to play devil's advocate and in fact agree with you. I presume you're familiar with Thomas Piketty and, and, and his work, right? Oh, yeah, of course. So just for the sake of listeners who, who aren't so familiar, Piketty wrote um, a rare blockbuster economics sort of tome <laughs> that was uh, called Capital in the 21st Century. And I, I, it's summarized in one sentence. It, it could be summarized in that one sentence. In fact, one formula, and I can't remember the formula, but it is basically the returns <laughs> to capital outstrip the returns to labor. Uh, and he proved this empirically. He had tons of data demonstrating that point. And I, and I think that's the basis of your frustration, if I understand you correctly, Chris, is just that bringing that back to the question of entrepreneurship, you, you feel that companies have that exploitative position, right? You you, you feel that they, by dint of bargaining power or whatever, inherently have that ability to exploit workers and, mm. and capture value. And that's some of the frustration you felt in the case of selling your courses online, uh, just to yeah, give that one much. example. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes total sense. And, and Piketty's kind of demonstrated that empirically. And I suppose then maybe this kind of where, where, where my head goes here is just like, it's a bit of an ill question, right? Because the fact that it is the case in some cases doesn't mean it has to be the case in all cases. And I think where we come to this, where we approach it and, and where I sort of hope the world goes is, is in the direction of this isn't a necessary feature of how companies are run. Just a couple points that you mentioned there, hierarchy and extraction of surplus. I do think that actually, one, hierarchy, if you have a perfectly democratic company, nothing will get done. You do still need to have like a system of order within a company to operate well. Like companies, companies exist in competitive environments. If democratic companies outperformed, then, then they would be the emergent companies that we see. Um, and then secondly, regarding surplus and, and surplus taking, I think it just kind of comes back to that point where like taking 10% of something that otherwise wouldn't exist is different to going to someone's house and taking their things that they already own. And 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 yes, like the specific numbers are important, right? Like taking so much that you're ridiculously wealthy, not pay like paying so little that people can't live with dignity. Like those are genuine issues, but those aren't necessary. Though the model of skimming a bit of surplus may be necessary for the incentives to make sense for a company to exist and for the economies of scale to be worthwhile, like as a cost saving. On on your point about democratic companies, though, I think. Um... You, you said if they outperformed, and I think the question is by what measure, right? Because I think the yeah. standard... What, what are the externalities? <laughs> yeah, the, the standard measure yeah. of performance is presumably something along the lines of sort of profits and... Yeah, that's shifting though. That's shifting. and but yes, that's yes shifting. it is shifting. And companies and are getting a bit flatter, but like I still think that like, you know, okay, for example, putting my, my realist hat on, right? We run quite a flat company, right? But if at the end of the day, Jake and I said, oh, you know, when push comes to shove, like actually the co-founders or, you know, whoever someone's manager is can't make a decision. Like we have to all sit down and talk about it and come to agreement. 
it would significantly slow things down. Sometimes it's better to make a decision that's not perfect or that not everyone's happy with rather than actually like have a democratic process for every decision that not I'm, everyone agrees on. I, I'm, okay, uh, can I respond? I, um, all right. Okay, could be good <laughs> Please, sir, can I have a turn? <laughs> Look, I, I'm desperate to tie it together, and, and I think that's a slightly unfair characterization of democracy. Most democratic mm. institutions don't need everyone to have groupthink in order to move forward. Uh, you can build mm. consensus, you can disagree and commit. I just hope we have a system in place where governments are powerful enough and, and tax enough that they're able to send the lift down for more opportunity and, and spread the opportunity yeah. wider and broader. So uh, to clarify, okay. I totally agree with that. I mean, uh, that's okay. That's getting lots of points. I guess the first one is, I think you have quite a negative view of democracy there. But okay, the main, um, the, I think the one Noam Chomsky book I would always recommend is Understanding Power. This is like just a couple of speeches that he gave. It's a really interesting book. And he basically summarizes all of socialism is that we should democratize as much of society as we possibly can. Now, the important thing here is this doesn't mean there are no hierarchies. This doesn't mean nothing gets done. This doesn't mean there is no public order. Quite the opposite, actually. The example Chomsky always gives is if you have a child but and the wait. child runs to a street, you have the right to like yank it back by the hand. And the same for companies that I think by default, these power structures are illegitimate. And only once you can legitimize them, via a democratic vote, for example, or by some means that the workers can influence what it comes, could be labor Wait, 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 wait. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Take, take your example. Yeah, okay. Take the example of your child. The way that you legitimize that is not democracy, it's need. You don't vote with the child, like, okay, do we agree that I'm allowed to yank mm -hmm. you out of the street? No. You agree that ultimately, when push comes to shove, the needs means th that the ends are justified or the yeah, yeah exactly yeah. like the legitimate uh, the, the need for the kids survival yeah. and safety overrides yeah. its own autonomy as it's exactly individual. you can make the same argument from a company like it's not do, do you understand how from our perspective it's confusing that you've first of all said the issue with companies <laughs> is that hierarchical and then said that they should be democratic and then said but that's that doesn't mean that they're not hierarchical like if that's the case yeah fine i agree they can be democratic and hierarchical oh yeah i mean those two things don't exclude each other Sorry, okay, let me clarify. Like, a hierarchy isn't by itself a bad thing. The difference is that yeah. some hierarchies, like a, like a God-given king, for example, that just executes yeah, you if you question him or her, that's a really bad hierarchy, yeah. obviously. But a hierarchy could also be something mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, we sit together, we vote on something that we want to have done, and then we all pull mm -hmm. together to make it happen. And if the leaders that we elected to organize this don't do what we think is good, we re-elect other leaders. Okay, but, but reasonably, right, first of all, every human reasonably in most situations in society um, have the fundamental right to leave a company, right? You know, it doesn't make sense that they necessarily have the same rights that a citizen has to a state that, that individuals just have to a company, right? Because the, the, the classic example that gives us to, to government is that it's different to a tennis club because you can't you can't leave the state you can leave a tennis club a company is more like a tennis club than a state so it's not fair to relate yeah. the way that okay we, can i give a counter as, argument as individuals have I, rights that to point is really common the way we have it to companies yeah. Go ahead. yeah okay i mean the counter argument is that um yeah you can leave a company and uh, but what happens if you don't have work you effectively starve sooner or later and then all the options you have is to join another tennis club in your words that just happens to be really autocratic and really exploitative. I mean, for us, this is a much easier thing to swallow because we're all reasonably middle class and safe and educated that we have a wide choice of where we can go to and sell our labor to, which makes life for us much easier. But the further down you go in the society and the less educated you are, the less choices you have. But for everybody in general, the only choices you have are between really undemocratic organizations that, yeah, you can leave one, but you always have to rejoin another. That's an issue of regulation yep. and not giving people a fair safety net such that they can exist outside of that scale. Because people, I mean, this is just coming back to like a minimum wage issue or in some sense where people are saying, oh, because they're choosing to be there. That's not free choice. Like, I agree fundamentally, if people had free choice, it makes it better. But also in those situations, you're talking about these companies where people need to operate within certain systems in order to actually function effectively within companies, right? So it kind of becomes the child argument again, where we can't effectively function if everything is discussion. I don't discuss with my child, I'm going to yank you out of the street. I just yank them out of the street. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, there isn't always going to be discussion, not every single decision. It's... But the thing is, if you work at McDonald's, 
if you paid seven fifty seven dollars fifty or fifteen dollars, fifteen dollars is obviously better, but your life is still going to suck because you have a manager that you hate. You hate going to work every single day. You have to deal with customers yeah. every single day. Your life doesn't fundamentally change. But then McDonald's. There's not a really McDonald's good book. Couldn't exist um, and actually run a company at that scale without without clear operational processes that. On the one hand, may feel dehumanizing, but on the other hand, are necessary to operating super efficiently to provide cheap food at that sort of scale. But yeah, like that scale shouldn't McDonald's exist. There should be lots more smaller. Most companies. McDonald's profit will be related to real estate, not to yeah, exactly. But I mean, burgers. somebody has to pay for that real estate. If you can't exist at that scale without humanizing work, then maybe you shouldn't. That's where the regulation comes in, and I think that's why I'd like to no, see I, these I huge companies broken up and I'd like to see smaller companies given a fair fighting chance so that they can compete far from just uh, economies of scale most of these companies are given tax breaks right like, mm -hmm. like it's actually hugely advantageous when you have that power to then lobby for more power <laughs> to pay less yeah. tax to help society less I think that's often the problem here like we're not comparing apples and oranges like Big evil corporations I'm, I'm totally are a problem. More regulation on those people. Yeah, I'm totally, totally behind it. I just I, don't think I don't think that that means that then as well McDonald's has to operate as some sort of democracy where I don't but, think but, that that's a real. But what Christian's saying is the two aren't mutually exclusive, and and you get one yep. and, with the other, and, and right? I, and it, I get, I get and, that because we literally run our company that way. We have a sense of hierarchy, but we also like deeply care what people think and, and make them stakeholders. But it sounds like Kristen's taking that to a further extreme where if you work there, you should have a say and managers can be essentially voted in or out. And uh, like you literally use that term. I don't know whether, how literally you mean that in actual practice. Um, quite um, literal, actually. I mean, I don't think that. Guys, guys, so, can I, mean, I just interject? As, as I annoy I think... someone as a manager, they shouldn't exclude me. Guys, if you don't make these companies more democratic, then the only way to break up their power is hierarchical top down. A government comes in and just smashes the company yep. up. Whereas if you install which I, which I some more democratic processes, those companies will become more fair naturally. It might be a better way. To change the economy to a more democratic model isn't going to be a simple answer, obviously. I mean, you guys are a pretty good example for this. That at what point does a company need to become democratic? At what point can they stay with like the original founder, maybe two or three employees? And I don't have a simple answer to that because there simply is no simple answer. Um, what I mostly talk about is companies that employ tens of thousands of workers. That's what I primarily talk mm -hmm. about. And those are the really bad examples in the economy that need to be regulated. I mean, right mm -hmm. now we have the government, but I mean, you can see what happens to the government. There can be a Donald Trump, there can be a Joe Biden, which is mm. significantly better still sucks overall and is definitely on the side yeah. of the big corporations and that, but, that to um, me speaks to exactly why i would be terrified by the idea of of a corporation necessarily being run by democracy like that exact form of populism where actually sometimes what's in the company's interest and so, sometimes even in a branch's interest and so inadvertently you know in an individual employee's interest even if they don't like it they may not actually have the the kind of wider knowledge or the willingness to see that it is in their interest. So, you know, when I'm telling you, look, man, I need you to flip X burgers per, per minute, like, oh, you're dehumanizing me, blah, blah, blah. But like, okay, sorry, let me break this down for you. If you don't do this, we're not going to make enough that I can pay you a salary. And us arguing about it is wasting time, which is also going to make it harder for this place to break even. So maybe the whole branch has to shut down, right? Like those yeah. sort of- Yeah, that's, that's a really good that sort of misconception populism. about socialism, basically. I believe in social democracies, not socialism. Okay, so in online discussions, when you go online and they are like hardcore left-wing socialist Bernie bros or whatever, they really often like to make the argument that under socialism, everything would be perfect, nobody would have to work, you would have like two-hour workdays or whatever. That's obviously not true. There would still have to be work mm. in society. There would still have to be people that do the really shitty work that nobody wants to do. There has to be somebody who cleans mm. the toilet. There has to be somebody who collects all the trash. The problem right now is that all of this work is put on very few workers that are horribly exploited in the worst possible sense. And Agreed. instead, what I would recommend or what I would hope a society could achieve is that all of this work that nobody really wants to do is more fairly distributed. And I mean, John Maynard Keynes talked about mm -hmm. this 100 years ago, that he yeah. assumed that nowadays we would only work three or four hours a day and I think about 20 hours a week. And this was true until the 70s when... But basically the working hours decreased. And this is still a case in Germany today, that if you live in Germany, you work significantly fewer hours than in the UK, for example. And this is because 
German workers have significantly more say in how companies run. Not much more, but slightly more. And Germany exploits mm. the rest of Europe. Obviously, there's like a really complex thing. But, yeah, I was about to um, mention that. <laughs> yeah. Generating a surplus from, uh, for example, Greece. But carry on. Yeah, yeah exploiting the rest of Europe. That's. Uh, but yeah, also, um, like in Germany, if a company becomes big enough, they have to have some worker control. Like By disagreeing, I'm making it sound like we're further apart than we are. I'm generally like I know. quite uh, I, I, I realize I pushed myself. you guys in a really narrow corner. Yeah. Uh, sorry <laughs> no, about no, that. No, 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 it's fair. <laughs> I would describe myself as like the kind of the kind of society that I think generally works is like, I'm not saying everyone should be like Sweden, but like Nordic countries with what they describe as social democracies, but not socialist states does, it, they seem to have like a comfortable mix between private enterprise and, and government um, control uh, that, that seems to work well and, and give people you know, the result is that they don't they don't share the work that sucks, but the people who do it still get to live dignified lives. And not everything is run by committee. Cool, gents. Yeah. I think we need to wrap up um, pretty soon. Otherwise, I'm not going to have a weekend because I'm just going to be editing. Um... Uh, apologies, gents. That was a, a wonderful hot mess of uh, Mark's yeah, practice. Oh yeah, I got much longer than expected. <laughs> Guys, thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Whoa! <laughs> wow. How do you feel after that chat, Jacob? I mean, um, it's actually been a couple of days for it to settle in. It has. We've had some time to reflect, uh, and what we'll do now, we'll, we'll give you some summary thoughts on the whole discussion. Before we do, here's just a quick reminder of some important things. Subscribe to our newsletter. You'll see links in the show notes. And if you want to support the show, we also have links to our Patreon and Facebook and everything else, and also Tree Points. You can you can offset carbon. New pricing coming soon. Well, yes. hopefully by the time you listen to this, it'll be live. It would be just £3.25 to offset an average UK resident. Yeah, that's some of the work we need to do on the website today. Um, and Stasha is the other business. Just to give you a quick reminder of, uh, so as soon as we're able to travel again, mm. uh, look out for that. Okay, so summary thoughts. Can entrepreneurship be a force for good? Was that even the question we just answered? Yeah. What do you think, Ed? Uh It ended up some something of a Marxist ramble by Chris, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> No, no, I think, I think we kind of touched on some really important points, right? I think we all agreed fundamentally that it can. The kind of question that this is really poking at is, does it seem to? Um, I think Cookie did a good job of, of often pointing out, you know, when we say entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is, is such a wide field, right? Mm -hmm. and, and too many people hear entrepreneurship and say Amazon and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, those, those are very... In terms of wealth, it's a large number, but in terms of um, like actual absolute number of entrepreneurs, it's a very small number of entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurial businesses are businesses of one to five. Yeah, small um, companies. Small companies. SMEs. Yep, uh, you know, your, your local high street, etc. Um, and, and even within tech and stuff, most companies are significantly smaller than the Amazon Microsofts. The discussion made me think maybe I didn't articulate well enough my opinion, my, my opinion on the kind of left-leaning side. That's because Chris was... So yeah. far into the left, but. well, yeah, it's so, so far left it made me look right. But um, uh, like, like we said, like you know, he talked a lot about co-ownership. Like, yeah, we literally live that. We mm. we give meaningful equity stakes, and actually, it's worth pointing out that a lot of startups, the norm is to give about ten percent per round or something in mm -hmm. equity options. Actually, I, I, we didn't discuss that, but how do you square that? Like, people are giving ownership; they're just not in the case of Uber. They're just not giving it to the drivers mm. who are kind of like the assets in their business model. I think my fundamental belief is that, yeah, everyone should be able to earn a dignified living. But I also think that sometimes appealing ideological rhetoric it actually in practice is harder to make happen. So, you know, how do we simultaneously create large, efficient um, operations whilst trying to preserve autonomy for people? We can take some reasonable steps and, and make like incremental changes in the things that exist, you know. Mm. I, I think, for example, requiring large companies to um, have board representation from, from workers is important and, and ownership from workers is important. But I mean, you know, if fundamentally, if, if you're, for example, um, McDonald's running burgers and 
part of the whole point of the reason that they have values because they're so good at maintaining their quality, which is by maintaining standards. How do you square that with giving the people who work there autonomy and, and the ability to feel human mm. rather than part of a supply chain, right? And you know, if you don't have that efficiency, how can you operate a company at scale? Which I know like it's easy to say in the context of one company, like, yeah, fine, if you can't do that, then you shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. But if you apply that paradigm across all companies, then actually the quality of life that we enjoy would be significantly lower because no meaningful company could really exist. Well, that's certainly interesting in the context of some of the examples you gave. I think Uber was a case in point of they've actually been, they've grown in scale and they've actually been super beneficial to consumers. It's, it's yeah. that lifestyle point that you're making, yeah. but that's come at a significant cost. And I think I actually, I, when I was listening back, I, I actually kind of realized, you know what, maybe we aren't being totally fair there. Like, yes, it's great sure. for consumers. I think there's a lot of people who drive Ubers who like, you know, even if I say Uber's not treating them fairly and they may still, you know, they may say themselves, Uber should treat me better, mm. but they may well still be very glad for that opportunity, right? Yeah, it does It does give people yeah. a really easy way to earn an independent living, yeah. right? On Which, their own time. Again, like, I, I'm not saying that that justifies it. I'm, hopefully we should live in a world where people aren't forced into taking sweatshop jobs and being happy for the fact that they have any job, right? <laughs> Thank you but, so um, much. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, what I'm saying is we shouldn't just say that actually when it comes to drivers, it's just totally negative. Like there's no positives, no one benefits from Definitely that. Not. There's no Uber driver who's happy with their role. Yeah. Um, I personally, I think what excites me about entrepreneurship is I think we hopefully are seeing a bit of a move towards, for want of a better phrase, stakeholder capitalism, where mm -hmm. more of the people invested or involved in the decisions a company makes are able to have a say, or at least their considerations are reflected in the way that the company is run. And we talked about the fact that Friedman's model of capitalism was like generate profit for shareholders. And I think that's overly simplistic. I'm not sure. I mean, there are definitely companies that have been run that way, but I'm not sure that's really... No, no, it's, I mean, it's sort of, it doesn't make sense, right? It's a it's, good scapegoat. I think, I think to be fair, the irony is, I don't even think necessarily that that paradigm doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. I think the time horizon over which you do it is the issue. Right, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. say for example you're a fossil fuel company, right? Ultimately, you are part of the planet, so maximizing your output, you know, maximizes your short-term stock uh, shareholder profit, mm -hmm. but it doesn't maximize your mid to long-term shareholder profit, right? Exactly, and it's recognizing that it's that sort of getting around short-termism and recognizing that the impact you have on consumers, on your team, on other stakeholders involved in your supply chain, as well as the people invested in you, yeah. who, who want to make sort of quick cash. They shouldn't all want to make quick cash, I suppose, is the point. It's, it's about having yeah. a long-term time horizon and factoring in sustainability, yeah. among other values. I think the other thing that I touched on earlier and that I maintain is that maybe this is a bit of a cop-out, but I think fundamentally what we should be doing is anytime that there's an instance where entrepreneurship isn't a force for good, that's kind of the place for government to guide with regulation, right? Because mm -hmm. I think so many of those examples, for example, you know, one company becoming too powerful. We should have more aggressive antitrust law, which is which is a precedent that did exist and, and just has been a bit weak recently. Now it will be stronger with Biden back in place. When people aren't being paid fairly, uh, our legal framework should be able to adapt quickly enough to, to provide support to people. It's sort of widening the net of uh, empathy yeah. <laughs> that companies yeah. operate in really, isn't it? But yeah, it's interesting because I think it's probably tempting. I don't, I, I don't want to put words in Chris's mouth, but I think it's tempting to come from a very hardcore left point of view and just think we need to rip up the system and start again and actually I think Chris to be fair at no point said that and I think from our point of view small but practical changes on the level of companies but on the level of policy as well uh, mm. will get us to a model where these things do start to operate more interdependently. Yep. And also I think one thing to know um, to quote Mark Corrigan uh, it's only by the miracle of modern capitalism that you're not you know rolling around in your own filth. The point, of, the, the point I make there, aside from a funny <laughs> quote, is that um, capitalism, if we do look at recent history, is an incredibly effective way of arranging our economies to be productive. That doesn't mean it should be unconstrained. I, I think anyone who thinks free market capitalism is perfect should simply review the economic history of the last 20 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that the removal of some of the core elements of capitalism would also not be beneficial. To be fair, I don't think, for example, Chris was saying that. I think I think we were more aligned than we were seeming because we were... I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> because we were taking separate... Um, no, I'm joking. I, yeah. I completely agree. I think so, so. I mean, like, for example, should more large companies give some ownership but not become state-owned, which I think I think he agreed with. 
But yeah, absolutely. I think I think mm. we're we're both in line with that. And maybe maybe his view maybe we're not fairly characterizing. Maybe his view is those kind of incremental steps. Mm. Um, what did you make of Cookie and his perspective of finance and startups specifically? Very interesting because it's something that we've talked about a lot. That being the sort of potentially corrupting nature of venture investment and other other forms of finance. I suppose again, it's that problem of short termism. It's it's these people come in with a slightly short term horizon because they just want to get you. For the next round of financing, at which yeah. point they can exit. Or well, or it doesn't well, apply to everyone. And actually, not necessarily that. It's that they want to ma- maximize their cash out, right? Their cash out, exactly. Um, which doesn't mean necessarily getting to another round. It, it can mean IPOing or building a large business with lots of revenue. Sure. But it does mean that they have certain biases. Where, for example, I'm more interested in you outgrowing problems rather than behaving yeah. ethically. For which example. is which is you've yeah. seen this with Airbnb causing problems in jurisdictions yeah. all around the world, like flouting sort of urban yeah. travel regulations, whatever. Uber um, too, where like their real estate. Yeah, all, all these companies where their policy seems to be hire an army of lawyers, mm. um, and you know become so so uh, become too big to fail. Like mm-hmm. become too many people are relying on you for too much income to for them to suddenly shut you off, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that can totally corrupt it. I think also in fairness. Not all venture investors are like this. Like there, certainly, like there's a lot of very reasonable ones. But I do think that the current financial model can sometimes fail for a range of companies in the middle, right? So, like, there's a lot of, say, for example, venture funds where the economics don't make sense to build a business that's worth 10 to 100 million. Um, but actually, that value to society is is pretty great, and there's probably more businesses that can fall in that range than there are businesses who can who can fall in the 100 mm. to several billion range. And those potentially are the kind of businesses that will operate stakeholder capitalism most effectively yeah. because they'll yeah. be at a size and scale where they can take those things into consideration. Yeah, certainly more easily. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap this up. Yeah, much love. Think about your morality every day, sort of. No, <laughs> whatever. <laughs>